You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads connect us from the original idea till the time gets to the reader? Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, this is going to be a nice turn for us. We talked a lot about books, but now we're going to get the insider's look at publishing. My guest is Jenny Rosberg, senior publicist at Pegasus Books. And Jenny, nice to be face-to-face. Good to see you. Yes, it's a pleasure. We've, we've talked on the phone several times, so it's nice to finally uh, digitally meet each other over, over Zoom, as it were. That's it, over Zoom like everybody else. So let's just talk about, I love Pegasus books, and we're going to get into that because a bunch of them have been on my TV program and the podcast. Just give us the overview of Pegasus books where you're the senior publicist. Yeah, uh, Pegasus books is, I, I mean, it's really a, wonderful little indie publisher that I'm, I'm so thrilled to get to work for. Uh, we publish a really wide variety of titles. So uh, I think a lot of our most critically acclaimed publications are often serious nonfiction. Um, you know, part of my job is getting, you know, review solicitations for these sorts of books. Um, we also publish a robust literary fiction list. Uh, and we have a, a really stellar crime imprint called Pegasus Crime, in which we're, we do um, true crime, mysteries, thrillers. Um, and uh, that, that one's always always fun to work on. It's a, the crime readership community is really uh, interesting and fun to tap into. And that's one of my specialties over the years. I, I love crime fiction. I give you a litany of people, but uh, you know a lot of the names. But there's a, just something really special about crime fiction. Ian Rankin once said, and I got a chance to interview him, by the way, for my TV program. If you want to know about an area, country, a region, uh, a town, a city, read its crime fiction. Do you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a great example um, I mean, I can see so much diversity in just the list of titles that we publish. Uh, one, you know, that I worked on kind of recently uh, was called Windhall by Ava Berry. Um, and this was kind of a, a throwback to the old Hollywood glamour, um, had to do with the, the kind of crime scene of L.A., some right. shades of the Black Dahlia murder um, versus, you know, a, a title I'm working on now with um, Denise Mina, Rizzio, which is all about the uh, assassination of the... Um, Duke Rizzio in the uh, chambers of Mary Queen of Scots. So it's this kind of historical um, thriller based on an actual political assassination, um, deeply steeped in a kind of Scottish culture and sensibility. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. You, you can learn you can learn a lot from from crime fiction. In terms of Denise Mena, and you sent me a copy, and I'm thrilled that I have my hands on it. Is that a departure for her in terms of any of the books that she writes? I think this one is, it's part of a unique, um, series of, uh, yeah, this actually, it was a British publication publisher originally approached several authors and asked them to re-examine, um, famous works of history through kind of thriller perspective. Uh, so it is kind of a, a branch out for her. It's a novella as well. So it's shorter than most of the, the novels she's most famous for. She's, I mean, she's done a bit of everything, which I'm sure, uh, she can tell you about, um, but you know, she's done plays and, um, television. Uh, this is, I think her first novella. So we're, we're very excited to get to work with such a prestigious author on a, on a very interesting kind of unique title. So let me ask a question for people who are not familiar with the term novella. What is a novella 
And what does it allow you to do in terms of less than, quote unquote, a full length mm-hmm. novel? Yeah, I, well, a novella, just the most simple definition would be it's a super short novel. Um, I think it, in terms of publishing, it's kind of a practical distinction to say, you know, a novel is going to be a certain a page count, a novella is going to be a little bit shorter. I think a novella grants an author more freedom to explore a more concise series of themes, right, um, right. a tighter story without having to expand it unnecessarily. Um brevity of the soul of wit and all that. Uh, so <laughs> I, I think it uh, allows people to kind of hone in on a, a particular story, a series of particular details. Um, and, you know, a short stories similarly are uh, a kind of a offer a different uh, advantage, uh, a different perspective um, into the art of storytelling. We've got a couple of Pegasus publishes a couple of collections. We have another one coming out, um, called weird women and it's, uh, kind of overlooked, um, you know, mysteries and, uh, you know, crime writing, ghost stories, right. a little bit of horror written by, uh, famous female authors over the, you know, centuries. Um, and I think we, we tend to focus more on the bigger works, the longer works, uh, novels. And there, there is something special about shorter storytelling. If you're just joining us, my guest is Jenny Rosberg, senior publicist at Pegasus Books. And let me ask, let me challenge you. There's this great debate going on in the world of literature um, in terms of commercial fiction or literary fiction. You know, I'm not smart enough to describe it, but you're the expert. So how would you describe the distinction? That's a good question. I think from a certain perspective, <laughs> I guess there, it, it's kind of a blurred line. Um, you know, one could also kind of draw a similar parallel between what we consider high culture and low culture or pop culture. Right. And I'm not necessarily sure, at least from my, my personal perspective, how useful that necessarily is. Uh, you know, one of the things my mom always told me is, you know, you should just read what you love. You should read for pleasure. You don't feel, you shouldn't feel the the need to read something particularly erudite or challenging if it's going to make you absolutely miserable. Um, and I think that there is a kind of, uh, you know, a kind of class distinction between the, you know, high literature and low literature. Um, but it, we find that, so many people, especially working with a, with a crime imprint, um, so many people love pop literature and low literature. I mean, you look at the success of, of books like 50 shades of gray or the twilight series where it got books in the hands of tons and tons of people who might not necessarily read. And at least from, from my perspective, I don't see anything wrong with that or, or something to be judged for. And I obviously see the, see the benefits of a kind of high cultural emphasis of, of scholarly rigor, especially working with, as I said, like really high level nonfiction titles that have been vigorously researched by academics and journalists. But I, I guess I, I suppose in my perspective, there's room for everyone in, in the world of publishing, in the world of books. All right, so let me queer you with this. When a singer-songwriter comes in, we've had them in studio, and it's it's a pure joy for us. We're big music fans, especially because they come in with their guitars, and we just look at them and say, well, Chris, who set all this up, uh, plays a little bit of guitar, so he always loves watching the techniques. So I mm-hmm. ask them, after you come home from a performance, and it's 3 o'clock in the morning, what kind of music would you listen to? You are surrounded by books almost 24-7. So when you get home to relax... If you read, 
What would you read to get out of that world where your office and you're surrounded by books and getting telephone calls from all over the place, take care of me, this didn't go, fix the interview, um, set up something else. So how, do you relax with a book on downtime? Absolutely. I, I relax with romance novels. <laughs> that's definitely, that's definitely my favorite. Um, I think I've, I've heard from other colleagues in the publishing industry that there's a tendency to, um, you know, read books that you don't necessarily work with because right. it kind right. of provides a bit of a buffer <laughs> between the, the work life and the pleasure reading. Um, so for me, you know, I'm working with, uh, serious nonfiction authors, um, crime authors and pitching op-eds and excerpts. Uh, and I, I really enjoy the books I work with. I think they're deeply fascinating, but in terms of just getting to sleep at night, turning off my brain, I, I want to read, uh, and enemies to friends, to lovers, uh, sorted romance. Uh, that is, that is my absolute favorite for my, for my pleasure reading. That reminds me that people would sneak into the, uh, closet and they snack on really bad food and, and, yes. and they would never take it. I, I always, I call it kind of like brain candy, but I understand mm -hmm. you've described it exceedingly well. So when I sit down or have a conversation with authors, I say there's two stories. The first story is between the covers of the book. The second story is their story outside the covers. And I've been blessed because I find sometimes that covers story outside the covers is even more dramatic and interesting. So in terms of your story, what brought you to publishing? Mm. Oh, desperation. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, uh, an English degree. Uh, I, I think I originally pursued publishing, um, from just a love of books, uh, a curiosity and wanting to know how they were made. Uh, I think there's kind of a, a misconception for young people, especially who are interested in working in publishing that it's all editorial work as well. Uh, which, you know, as a young person, you kind of have a fantasy of like, oh, well, you sit in your fancy New York City office, you've, you know, got a beautiful view out the street, you've got a stack of papers in front of you and a, a red pan, pen in one hand, right. and a cup of coffee in the other, and you're furiously editing manuscripts into the dead of night. Um, and I, I'm a big reader, I'm a lover of books, and uh, I was also not particularly interested in uh, getting into the, the nitty gritty of editorial work, um, partially just because it just, you know, it's a lot of out of, out of work hours. It's, it's kind of a lot of, you know, meetings during the day and then editing manuscripts by night. Um, it's, a a very mechanical approach to, um, the books you're working with at times. Uh, I think there's a, a big emphasis on the editor author relationship as well. Yeah. Um, in which there's, you know, so much beauty and productivity. Like those are some of the most creative interpersonal professional relationships that I, I think we see, um, you know, most popularly in, in depictions of publishing. Um, but it, it was really going to uh, a program called the Columbia publishing course that uh, I think opened my eyes to different channels of working within publishing um, and really allowed me to see a bit more of a practical future for myself there. I, I'm not the type who can stay up late at night uh, edit, editing manuscripts into the wee hours of the morning. I have a strict bedtime of 10.30. Right. Uh, <laughs> I get tired easily. Um, 
And, uh, you know, there's, there's book publicity is uh, marketing, sales work, production work. There's so many different facets to publishing that I think people tend to, um, tend to overlook. And I was, I was really interested in those kinds of, uh, practical, sometimes business oriented sides of, of work, the professional relationships, um, establishing like this, like contact with media people, um, who you're, you're regularly pitching and in communication with those were the, the kind of communication, people management, businessy job skills were, were kind of what, what pulled me to this particular part of publishing. So you, you mentioned editors. The most famous editor of all time was Maxwell Perkins. And the reason why he's always in a discussion, because it's always been a question of what did he edit and what did he really write for the author? And I find that fascinating. There's still uh, a lot of discussions about that and controversy. But if you know the world of publishing, Maxwell Perkins is probably at the top of the, the food chain in terms of what he did and what he created. Uh, so let's kind of take people inside the world of publishing. From the initial idea, how does a book get into my hands and the general reading public? Because I find that interesting. Everybody thinks, all right, we, the book is in the bookstore. You can go to Amazon and you buy the book. Yeah. And and you, and it, good, bad, or indifferent, the book is in the public's hands. But yes. the, the real the real tip of the iceberg is from the first idea the writer gets to it gets into the hands of the reader. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. the The life of a book is much more complicated <laughs> than I think most people assume. I think. Uh, you know, I've, I've had people approach me kind of uh, in that classic New York City way where you say, well, I work in publishing. They say, oh, I've got a book idea. It's like, no, 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 don't tell me. Please don't tell me. <laughs> uh, but uh, the the book begins with the author. Um, they will write uh, either, you know, kind of depending on the subject matter of the book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, right. either, um, you know, for fiction, you, you pretty much write the whole book. Uh, for nonfiction, depending on the profile of the author, you can write um, a couple of chapters, a general outline, um, an expression of an idea, a thesis that the, the book is going to argue. Um, and then you bring this uh, to an agent, a literary agent. Literary agents are kind of the first um, gatekeeper through which an author must pass in order to access the vast publishing industry. Um, agents work to edit the manuscript before it even goes out to publishing houses. Right. They, um, are kind of the first editor that the, that the author talks to. Um, and publishing houses really rely on them as a, as a kind of filtration system of what seems, what they deem worthy of being published by a, a house and, um, you know, what would maybe work better as an article or a self-published book. Um, and you know, there's, there's pros and cons to that as, as we can open up the, the conversation about publishing's flaws overall. But, um, the, the agent will then, uh, take the book manuscript, whatever form it's in, um, to publishing house houses. Um, they email publishers, um, editors and, uh, see if they are interested in the book. If they are, they make an offer. Um, agents often will shop a book around to several places at once to try to get, you know, the most, uh, money for the author. And then they take a percentage of that, um, that fee. Um, then, uh, the book kind of passes into the hands of the publishing house, uh, and the editorial team there. Um, 
the editors will, you know, some people have more hands-on approaches. Some right. people like to see right. kind of like a finished manuscript when it shows up. It depends on the book. Um, sometimes the editor then does a, a really in-depth editing process with the author where you're, um, you know, doing line edits line by line in a manuscript, or you need it to get down like an a thousand page history of Russia or something. And your production company says, make it 800 pages. So you got to somehow work with the author to cut out chunks and chunks and chunks of this book and, and help them deem what's important to keep in what's not, you know, for fiction, sometimes it can require a significant reworking of the plot of characterization, so it goes through it goes through all of that process until you have a, a workable manuscript. That thing gets passed to usually freelance copy editors. Sometimes bigger houses have them in house. For us, we're an indie press, so some of those right. smaller jobs we right. um, we use freelancers for. They you know they spruce up the manuscript, make sure there's no typos, just kind of put the finishing touches on it. Um, that all takes place over the course of you know, what can be uh, a year to several years, depending on the kind of uh, the author's timeline for writing their book. Then the book will move into the production process in which um, they, you know, you have a production specialist who actually sets the pages out, right. lines up the text equally, make sure, you know, you, you have to pay attention to page count. How many, how many uh, reams of paper is the actual printing machine going to put into the book and how does that affect the layout of the book you're working with cover designers you're pulling from editorial and starting to talk to publicity and marketing about how the book is going to be positioned publicly what the you know information on the back cover should read gotta get those those blurbs that have become so famous and infamous in the publishing industry well said Um, yeah then the you know the book gets bound up it's physically printed um at one of the you know, only two major book bindaries, I believe, is what we're at in the U.S. Um, definitely not an expert on production, uh, myself being a being a publicist. But there's there's actually only a few companies who do specialized book binding, which is which is really interesting. And then it you know it kind of passes into my hands. So I work with the initial files for a book, ideally like six months ahead of publication. We send, um, you know, some publishing houses print arcs or galleys, which are those kind of cheaply bound um, pre-publication, pre-copy edited editions of books um, that I'm sure you've received as a media person. We pitch extensive lists of contacts, you know, from book review editors to then honing in on kind of what we consider short lead contacts. So radio, podcasts, um, sometimes television and uh, try to get the book in the hands of people who will cover it. At the same time, marketing is kind of positioning their ads, paid content for the book. And uh, then you hit the the publication date and that's kind of the culmination of the book's lifespan. That's when you're gonna see publicity reviews coming in, you're gonna see marketing ads running in newspapers and online. Um, and that's the official date where everyone should have the book in their bookstores. You know, when you hear, you know, pick up your copy wherever books right, are sold, right. that's they're being sold. Um, and that's when the reader actually goes out and buys their fabulous copy of hopefully a Pegasus book. All right. So my guest is Jenny Rosberg, senior publicist at Pegasus Books. Now, um, authors, it's not a blanket statement. It can have any ego. And I'm going to make you laugh because I had a conversation with an author recently and really was very concerned about the photo, his photo, go into the book. So do you have to wrestle with that in terms of making sure they're happy the way that they look when the book is finished? 
Yes, <laughs> I definitely. This is this is the 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 true uh, the true tea of being a book publicist is uh, authors are a they are a mixed bag. I have had some really lovely, lovely people I've worked with over the course of my career. People who are deeply passionate um, about their subject matter, whether it be a novel, whether it be nonfiction, whether it be a crime thriller, uh, and then. Just like in any job, sometimes you've got dif- difficult people and it, you know, publicity does require a certain amount of handholding, I guess you would say, and making sure that you're, you know, you, this is, this is someone's baby. A book is someone's baby. That's their intellectual creation in many ways. They've, they've toiled away for months, maybe years creating this book. Um, and they want to make sure it's absolutely perfect. And it's our job to convince them it's absolutely perfect and, and do our best to, to convince everyone else that it's absolutely perfect as well. But yeah, authors, I think authors are definitely the, the highest and the, the lowest parts of, of the job of a publicist. But you know what? It makes for really interesting stories at cocktail hours, worst case scenario. I'm sure. What you do is really about, in its essence, about relationships. That is, that is so important. Somebody told me in confidence, I'm not going to mention their name. They went from <laughs> a major publishing company to a smaller one. And he said he's much happy with that based on how he's treated at the smaller publishing company in terms of relationships. So I, I, I don't want to relitigate this, but I think that's an important part of what you do and what the industry does. Now, big names are big names are big names. They can do anything they want. They, they are, they're at the top of the food chart, food chain. Mm-hmm. Other people, mid-lists and debut writers aren't. So, and sometimes they get pushed aside a little bit. So how important is establishing a relationship? I'm going to mention some names after you respond of the people that you've published that I have interviewed on television Mm -hmm. in the past and presently, and also that for this podcast. And that's why I really enjoy working with you guys. Everything gets sent my way is just so interesting and so high quality. So if you want to just kind of amplify a long-winded question about relationships. Definitely. Yeah. I think um, I, th- I think it's a really good question. I, th- I think it also speaks a bit to personalities and and what kind of people get along at what different you know work workplace settings. Um, one of the things that uh, kind of returning to your question about what attracted me to publishing in the first place, um, you know, one of the things I liked about it was it was kind of a you know a more structured office job that does allow some creative freedom where you feel like you're investing in a a large scale creative project even if it's someone else's book you know people in publishing love books we take our work incredibly personally and seriously um and i i think that's true whether you're at a big house or an independent house um and i think there's you know there's pros and cons to both settings you know at a larger scale publishing house you get probably a little more job security. Um, if the market crashes, your job's not as at risk necessarily. Um, you get great benefit, healthcare benefits, you know, 401ks, all that kind of stuff. Um, working in a kind of one of the larger, you know, big four or five like corporate houses, um, at a smaller house, you get a little bit more creative control, um, and a a closer working relationship with, you know, the, the people you're corresponding with, uh, One of the things I love about working at Pegasus is the size and how intimate it is. It's a really tight knit team. I mean, our publicity team is three people, including myself. Um, Our our two publishers are actually 
uh, a married couple. Uh, so, you know, our, our Zoom calls are kind of like a mix of very professional, normal meetings. And then occasionally, you know, the um, toddlers are in the background and they say hi on the Zoom calls. It's, it's a very like personable. And, you hear, and you hear all the pets, the dogs, the cats. I, I, hear, I say when yep. people come on for a Zoom uh, interview and there's a cat in somebody's shoulder in the back when there's a dog barking. <laughs> I say, let it roll. That's real life. Don't don't yeah. shush them away. I, I love when they, I hear those sounds. Yeah, it, it brings a kind of, it brings a really personal touch to the way we get to, to work with people. That is definitely one of the, you know, not to put a, too much of a silver lining on COVID because it, it was overall very devastating for so many people. But there, there have been kind of new methods of work that have opened up um, Zoom conferences, uh, talking with people face to face, you might not normally get to meet. Right. Um, I, I definitely do appreciate that, uh, that element of, of my job. Um, I will say also, uh, another benefit of working at an independent press is far, far fewer viewer bureaucratic emails. Um, having worked at a, a larger press previously, you do just have to kind of send email after email, trying to figure out whose job it is to respond to this one request. And, uh, it, it, sucks a lot of time out of your day, um, you know, such as the, the necessity of working at a larger company. Um, and Pegasus is nice. I get to just email the publishers and say, you know, Hey, is this book ready? You know, Hey, is this, is this author available for a, for a call soon? Um, and we all work together and collaborate really, really closely. And as a publicist, I also feel like I get so much more creative control and investment in the kind of whole book process that we just talked about, like from beginning to end, like, um, my publisher will email me a manuscript and say, Hey, what do you think of this? That, you know, that's something that doesn't necessarily happen at a bigger press where your jobs are a lot more segmented and regimented. Um, but you know, again, it's, it's kind of like everything works for different people, different personalities fit well in different work environments. I had a family member ask me years ago, because they know what I do. Why don't you write? And it's a very simple retort. I know how hard it is to do to create something. I, I think I can ask some good questions and do my homework and research, but I know how hard it is. You mm-hmm. are surrounded by books, ever the urge to sit down and write something yourself. Yes, yes, and also it, supreme intimidation to do it as well. Right. It kind of goes both ways. Um, so half the time I say like, oh, well, you know, this schlub can do it. I can do it too. And then the other half, it's like, oh my gosh, you, you know, you look at some of the incredible literary and academic work that's being published and uh, the imposter syndrome creeps in and you think, oh, Boy, I, I, I understand that. That's been raised many, many times. You're not the first person to talk yeah. about that. Yeah, I do. Um, I do uh, have a, my side gig as it were, is I'm pursuing a master's degree part-time um, at the Graduate Center at CUNY in um, the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies Department. Right. And one of the things I really enjoy about combining kind of my, you know, discipline of publishing and understanding of the, the publishing industry with my own studies and reading and academic writing um, is it at sometimes getting to see a, a total picture, the, you know, the way an academic would bring a book forward, um, relating more to the authorial side again. Um, and it, it also forces me to, to write regularly. You know, when you have a paper due in a few months, you have to write the paper. So in terms of gender studies, and this is where we can get into the heart of publishing, but it also, it also talks about the whole world in terms of corporate America. 
have you seen changes? When I when I still recognize names going back 20 years from some people who are still publicists at major publishing companies. Yeah. It seems to be a female-dominated industry, but are, is there a glass ceiling for what you want to do? Not just you, but just the women in your orbit. Because I don't know how – I mean, there are, there's, uh, there are female uh, publishers. There's some named Carol Reedy, I believe, is one, correct? Mm-hmm. So they have raised up. But I wonder if it's not enough right now in the context of what's happening today in America. Yeah, I – I think that publishing is kind of an interesting case study. It's an industry that is very landed or, or I should say rooted in tradition. Um, you have a lot of people coming from, um, you know, well-educated, well-established families. Um, a lot of young women who maybe aren't necessarily attracted to, um, other kind of more corporate jobs, but still want some, some of the like rigor and intellectual rigor and and comfort of a, of a white collar job. Um, I think, you know, I personally think there is still a divide between some of the, the men up at the top and the, you know, people who are working down at the bottom, which is increasingly a, a female workforce. Um, I think the other area we're really seeing publishing start to, grapple and and struggle with is racial disparity in the industry, both in terms of the people we hire and the books we publish. I think, you know, it's whether, whether we like it or not, uh, overall social themes of gender inequality, racial inequality, disability, all, all of these kinds of issues come to bear in in every element of life. And they're, they're definitely playing out in the publishing industry right now. I think you're seeing more and more people start to really petition for higher pay, for more equitable hiring practices. Uh, and there at times does seem to be a, a kind of established, you know, I almost want to call them like a landed aristocracy of, of old publishing people who uh, really kind of want to hold the line of traditionalism. And, you know, just as I was talking about earlier with high culture and low culture, I think there's there's space for all sorts of different books to be published. And I think really expanding the industry, both in terms of uh, the authors that are published and the people that work there uh, can only do can only do good by publishing. So we're going to do. We're going to take a short break. And after the break, by the way, I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Art Periscope. My guest is Jenny Rosberg, senior publicist at Pegasus. I'm going to mention some of the books you published because they've been kind enough to join me either in my television program or podcast because it's a great list. And I want you to give us some insight how they came to you and the reason why I think everything that they have written is, um, is outstanding, quite honestly. So we'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. We're going to continue our conversation with the senior publicist from Pegasus Books, Jenny Rosberg. So I mentioned before we took the break some uh, writers that have come my way, and um, they are the best. So let's first start with the first person I got when we started up the podcast again was S.J. Roseanne. She was the one that had the cat on the shoulder when we were doing Zoom. So 
Um, she, her Lydia, Bill Smith, Lydia Chin books are actually Lydia Chin and Bill Smith books. I've been following them for years since I go back to one of the first books she ever wrote in my TV days. So it was great to finally make the connection to get her to come on with me. So talk about however you want to talk about her book and SJ herself. Oh, she is, she is lovely. I have not had the chance to meet her in person yet, um, actually, but we just had our first kind of publicist author intro call right. a few weeks ago since I'm, I'm working on her forthcoming novel to, to publicize it. She's someone who's just a, a consummate professional. She's a very, I think, interesting and compassionate author who is willing to, frankly, hustle the book. Yeah, um, no, she's to, good at that. Yeah, to, to do interviews, to reach out to her connection. She's, you know, an established writer. She's incredibly talented, has put out a number of books with Pegasus. And uh, that's, I guess that's one of the things I really love to see in a a publicist author relationship is being able to really collaborate creatively about the different ways we can, you know, work to get the book in people's hands. So, you know, we had a a phone call a few weeks ago and I I have kind of a a general overview of a publicity campaign that I give to authors. Every time we talk, I say, you know, I, I kind of explain basically what we talked about. I say that, you know, a few months ago, I got the manuscript for your book. I've been sending it to all of these outlets. As we get closer to the publication date, I'll start to set up some interviews for you. If you want to write an original piece or two, I'll be happy to pitch them. She just, she just dove right in. She was like, that's great. Let's do some events at this place, this place, this place. Here's, you know, three authors, you know, colleagues of mine you can reach out to about doing some events and in conversation with each other. You know, here's, you know, a a bookshop that I have a longstanding relationship with. Let's get in touch with them about a launch event. And, And that kind of, you know, skill, professionalism, enthusiasm to really promote the book, go out, talk to people about the book is always just so rewarding and fun to see. I mean, that's, that's where you really feel as a publicist that you're working in harmony with an author when they're just like, I'll do anything you tell me to let's, let's go. Now here's where the game has changed even before COVID. And I want to touch upon that, that the big writers were still going out on tours. I, I know Nelson DeMille very well and you know, mm-hmm. he can, they'll send him, he, he's, he'll say, no, I don't want to go. He doesn't have to do anymore, but he's the big uh, book tours. Um, go to the big writers because it's expensive also, I believe. Yes. And, and you're shaking your head. And the, um, people listen to this can't see that, but you're acknowledging. <laughs> by shaking your head. yes. But the yes. Midwest writers and the new writers are saying pretty much what I've been told, I have to promote myself. And then bang, COVID-19 happened. And what I'm also hearing is, yes, everybody's doing virtual book tours, but what they're missing is the connection of an audience, whether it's in a bookstore or I've done public events. I did a major event with Maria Shriver, almost 600 people at a theater on Long Island, Madison Theater. Wow. The, yeah. en- the energy coming from the audience to the author, in my mind, because I always allow a portion of time for questions, is, is my, in my mind, is pure validation that you don't get from virtual tours and the blurbs are really nice. I've seen great blurbs, but you kind of need that immediate feedback from people who came to see you in person. Yes, I, I agree completely. I think it's a, a completely different ball game to talk about digital events and, and in-person events. They're, they're just kind of two different elements, especially from 
uh, a practical publicity standpoint in terms right. of right. the amount of work that goes into to coordinating them as well. A digital event is relatively easy for a publicist to set up and for an author to attend. I actually put together a pretty interesting and successful digital book tour for Lucy Jane Santos, who's the author of Half-Lives and Unlikely History of Radium. And we took a, a really kind of unusual approach to setting up the tour. We actually reached out to independent bookstores in regions of the United States where there had historically been radium spas. That's so, smart. That's really smart. It was it was really cool. And that was another instance in which I got to collaborate with an author. And she said, you know, historically, there were these areas in the United States where people would you know, go bathe in the radium water waters and, and try to seek their, their curative um, properties. They right. believed that they were, you know, good for beauty, good for health. And I said, well, why don't we, you know, take the research that you've done in this area and pitch some local bookstores who would be interested in, in hearing you talk about that. And we were able to set up a, a really fascinating string of virtual events with several bookstores. And each event was kind of personalized to this research that she had done on the you know, radium in the, in the area, you know, the flip side of that is sometimes I have authors who, who say like, well, you know, where are all my virtual events? I'm, I'm sitting here at home and I've got nothing else to do. Uh, I would love to do a, you know, a virtual event every day, every weekend or right. whatever it right. is. And there, there really has to be kind of a, a local connection or something, something special that will incentivize um, a bookstore because on their end, it's a lot, it's actually a lot of work for them to set up the event, to order the books, um, to sell it to people, even for a virtual event, they, they want to make sure they have copies in stock for people to order They're you know, they're setting up the, the zoom details. Uh, they have to have someone read the book and research in case they're having a proctor. There's plenty of people who go to virtual events and say, well, that was really fascinating. I'm going to buy the discounted book on Amazon now. I know that. And I know that. <laughs> our, our evil overlords that we that we have to bring up every time we talk about publishing, uh, who, we, who we love very, very much. It, it's really interesting that different dynamic versus, I mean, one of the things that's also just practical about talking about in-person events, you know, you were speaking to the the kind of emotional connection that we that we feel as audience members, as, as the host of, of an event, feeling like you're, you're part of a crowd, that you're part of a, a collective learning experience. There's also just a very practical pressure to pick up a book when you see it right there, when the author's right. staring at you with and, their big glittery eyes and, and it's, they say, and it's, sign your copy. And it's signed and personalized. <laughs> you, you mentioned, yeah. you said the magic word. What we try to do on these podcasts, we usually have multiple segments. So, uh, it's all for, it's for storytellers. That's the umbrella storytellers. But I true, try to do from time to time commentary. And one of the commentaries I did in a previous episode was a bookstore owner from Lawrence, Kansas, Danny Kane. Danny Kane wrote a letter to Bezos taking on what they do. And I find that really interesting. And he got a great response. I believe it was a magazine piece about the, the letter they wrote. So he came on and pretty much read the letter. And mm -hmm. it was the perfect coda to the whole episode because that's all a part of the process. Um, I believe in shopping local. Mm -hmm. Independent bookstores, some of them I know and the Long Island area have gone out of business. Book Review in Huntington is, a, is still a beast. But other than that, there's still the major chains. So this is a fascinating thing about getting the book into hands of people who are local people or local businesses, which is a, a much broader conversation and probably will take that another time because I want to get to somebody else who I thought was terrific. There is something that's called Crime Reads, and I have access to it on Twitter. And I came across something that Paul Vittage wrote 
on crime leads, crime reads, excuse me, about his father who may or may not have been a spy in Yugoslavia. He was a terrific guest and we got, uh, not because of me, but because of Paul, a really good response. So you're shaking your head once again for people that can't see you, but I want to let them know what I'm watching. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's talk about Paul Vidic. And he wrote the book, this latest book is called The Mercenary. Yes. Yeah, The Mercenary is a really fascinating story. Paul is, again, one of these really just professional, experienced writers who's a pleasure to speak with, to work with. He's always got an innovative idea, a new angle or approach. And Crime Reads, particularly as an outlet, is also just so so much fun to get to work with as a publicist since they, you know, their whole thing is just a love of uh, of crime stories, of, uh, you know, unshelved under literary hub. It's just a love of literary life and books in general. So, yeah, I mean, Paul is, Paul is very um, professional, well-spoken. Uh, he, he's got a new book coming out with us called The Matchmaker. And I will be sure to, to send you an advanced copy of that as well, because I, I think it's going to be really interesting. And he, I think, taps into a excellent balance between kind of personal interpersonal tension in right, storytelling right, right. and a broader political historical you know situation a lot of his stories are set amidst the cold war so they're they're kind of rooted in deep research and as you mentioned a kind of a personal interest uh if if his father was indeed a spy and there, there's always something so fun about well-researched fiction. And I think he's one of those authors who does that really, really skillfully. And highly respected in the world, in the world of publishing. He, yes. really, he really, really is. I know Joseph Cannon is a friend of his, and I've also sat down with Joseph Cannon. Um, when I was a kid, I'm a big sports fan. I used to go to Yankee State and to see doubleheaders, where you could sit through doubleheaders because you were a kid. And my uncle, uncle used to take me. I had an amazing doubleheader on one previous episode of the podcast. We started with Heather Martin, who wrote the biography of the Reacher book about Lee Child. And then mm -hmm. we came back with Jennifer Murphy, first responder. And I'm just saying both Pegasus, it just the way it worked out. But I'm saying it was, <laughs> it was the perfect marriage. In fact, I think, when, you know, we take a little bit of break and we kind of I can touch base and schmooze a little bit with the first guest before we start the second segment. And Heather, who I love, is saying, well, we, I'll, I'll get out of the way because Jennifer's coming up. And so that was very nice that she said, you know, uh, you know, you can finish with me and start with the second one. That quote unquote metaphorically double header was amazing. And you guys helped set it up. Yeah, those are those are two. I mean, wonderful fascinating female writers I've gotten to work with recently, both just like incredibly intelligent, professional, personable women who I, I, you know, I just, I, I realized the the phrase female writers is fraught. Some people would rather just say writers, but as a, as a woman, I also love to see other women excelling in the industry. Heather wrote a deeply researched biography of Lee Child and actually worked very closely with him in order to really get into details about his childhood, his personal life, his, his upbringing and uh, writing from the perspective of a, a fan of the, the books, the Jack Reacher books, but also with the critical eye of an autobiographer of, of some, or a biographer, excuse me, of someone who's interested in, in telling an honest truth about their, their subject 
And uh, Jennifer Murphy. You said it right there. The honest truth came from Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah. Her, I mean, her book, First Responder, which is a, a memoir about her experience working as an, uh, a volunteer EMT in Park Slope, Brooklyn, during the, the COVID-19 pandemic this past year, was a really emotional and moving book to, to work on. It's, it's very interesting. Also, I think working with someone who, who's writing a memoir in which they're, right. Right. you know, there, there's kind of a difference between it's somewhat, you, you run into similar issues with someone like Heather, who's writing a biography of someone else, obviously with a, a personal connection to the stories as a fan of Lee Child's writing, as someone who developed a, you know, intimate professional relationship with him as they collaborated on this book together. And, you know, Jennifer's writing about her, her firsthand experience. So she doesn't have any kind of layer of buffer between right. her herself right. and the story. These are things she lived, she did, she watched people die on the street, essentially. Yeah. It was an incredibly emotionally fraught time for her. And she is just one of the, I you know, loveliest people I, I've gotten to work with. I, I mean, it's, it's truly interesting to get to see the, the different ways in which people emotionally engage with their, right. their subject matter. First Responder was definitely a, a favorite, one of my, my books to work on for, for that reason. I had, I, I want to say the opportunity to sit down with Jeanette Walls when she wrote The Glass Castle, mm. which is one of the most successful memoirs of all time. I believe, I believe Tom Cruise got access to it and made it into a movie. And the one thing that st stayed with me, she said, because it's almost Dickensian what she went through. And she said, if you talk to siblings and other people, their memories may be a little bit different. This is my story. And I raised the same question with Jennifer, just about mem memoirs in general, that really what they're telling, even though it may be slightly different, it's their story. And that's what makes it so powerful and insightful. It may not be totally accurate in the eyes of somebody else. I know she had to change some of the names of a lot of the people she was involved with. Mm -hmm. But if you want to just touch upon that, that, that made it really special for me. The honesty of this is my story and my story alone, even though the cast is so large. Yes. Yeah, I think that was, that was something that Jennifer spoke about it in one of her events that I attended. Her, her personal experience kind of struggling what she wanted to share right. and what was what was too personal what felt like it needed to be said even though it was very personal and uh i believe it was a friend of hers who told her you know this is your your story you yeah. get to craft it according to the narrative you want to tell and i i think that is one of the beautiful aspects of memory one of my you know other personal readings tied to my school work right now is uh jack halberstam's the queer art of failure wow. in which he describes yeah. the kind of beauty and opportunity that opens up when we when we fail when we mess things up and one of his ideas is suspect memorialization suspecting our memories having unreliable narrators having confused thoughts confused ideas things that are misremembered or remembered differently and that is i one of the the beauty and, and powerful things about storytelling is you know memory is flexible memory is mutable it, it changes according to the narrative you want to tell i'm going to paraphrase gabriel garcia marquez and he said we have three lives or three components we have a public life a private life and a secret life now i'm not going to get personal with you 
But I find that interesting because sometimes public life and private life can come together. But the part that fascinates me is, of anybody who's a storyteller, how much of the secret life will ever come out? And do you think about that as a potential writer yourself? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think there's a kind of, you know, meme culture of, of the, the desire to, to know someone else in the ordeal of being known, of being scared of someone truly recognizing who you are. And writing is a form of exposure and intimacy. You, you really have to open yourself up for whatever you put on the page that that came from you. That's, that's yours. It, it's an incredibly vulnerable experience. I think returning to the idea of uh, you know, relationships with authors and mitigating, you know, their worries about publishing, about how the book's going to be received, if they get a bad review. You know, there's there's this great uh, Anne Bradstreet poem called uh, From the Author to Her Book, in which she describes being ashamed of this kind of unruly creation, of, of feeling like it's never going to be ready for other people to see and read and objectively appreciate and that's all writing. I mean, it's it's never finished until I guess you're dead uh, and you can't write anymore. All right. So we're coming to the back end. I'm going to let you put on your publicist hat one last time. Let's tease everybody. Spring list. And I imagine even, you know, kind of what's coming up in the summer. I love having entree to that because it kind of gets me really excited. These are the books I may want to read for pleasure. These are the books, hopefully, that you guys are kind enough to come back to me to set up interviews. So if you just want to throw out a few things about spring and summer as I go on and on and on, the seasons are going to end before I stop, stop with this question, run with it. That's one of my favorite parts about my job as well. We have a, uh, a kind of seasonal sales meeting. So Pegasus divides our, our catalogs into three seasons. We've got sp the spring season, which stretches from like January to April, summer, which is May through August, and then fall, winter, which is the, the rest of the year. Once for one of these, uh, you know, trimesters of, of our publishing season, we get to listen to a sales presentation, which Jessica and Claiborne, our, our co-publishers, right. present to Simon & Schuster, who we distribute our books through and, you know, run through this fantastic catalog of titles. And it's always like a, I feel like a kid on Christmas morning. I'm like, oh, I want to work on that book. I want to work on that one. I'm going to read that one. So... Let me see. Oh my gosh, I feel like I feel like I'm being asked to pick my favorite child a little bit. But well, um, make, make some they're, the, they're twins or triplets. Run with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the titles I'm really excited about for fall is called Europe's Babylon, and it's a, a history of the kind of glory years of Antwerp by Michael Pye, who is a renowned historian who's I think most famous for The Edge of the World, which he published a few years ago with us, and it is gorgeously written. It's kind of rambling. It's exploratory. It's a very creative approach to nonfiction um, and looks at the history of a, you know, a, a major touchstone Renaissance city that I think gets overlooked in, uh, you know, a lot of uh, classic kind right. of conversations about the Western Renaissance. So that one's definitely on, on my to read list. We've got another book. It's actually a novel that I'm, I'm working with. Uh, the, I'm working on it. Uh, to publicize it called Learwife, which is a kind of feminist retelling of Shakespeare's King Lear. And that's going to be really interesting. 
Yeah. Yeah. Looking at his, you know, his wife, who's famously kind of like written off in a throwaway line in the play and never, never appears again by J.R. Thorpe, who was actually named one of the, the observers, like top 10 debut novelists last year, um, since we, we co-published with the UK. And she's, you know, just again, one of another fantastic writer who I've, I've had a, I'm so excited about the opportunity to get to work with her. And, you know, I'm personally a big nerd for Shakespeare. So that's that's one of my favorites as well. And then uh, in our upcoming season, we've got a couple of a couple of books that I'm really excited about. I think my personal favorite and I haven't even uh, gotten to speak with the author yet. So if he ever listens to this podcast, he can hear how excited I am. It's a book about jackalopes, which are, you know, the kind of mythical um uh, rabbits with antlers with deer antlers right. uh, i know i know the picture up i can i can see <laughs> yeah. i can visualize that yeah yeah there I, there is kind of some root in fact there is actually um a a strange disease that rabbits can get um or hairs and i'm not a biologist uh in which their their hair kind of clumps up at the top of their head in these odd little deer-like horns and it does actually look like they're kind of growing deer antlers but then of course there's this whole folklore history um a kind of history of taxidermy um involved in this book and and it's a really kind of creative uh, approach to a very wacky subject i i personally demanded that i get to work on this as the publicist because when i was a kid um, my family would go to a mexican restaurant that had taxidermy around the walls and one of them was a jackalope and i remember as a child eating chips and salsa and asking my parents is that a real animal Uh, (laughs) and the last thing i'm going to mention is boy do i miss expo book expo yes and i know it sounds like it's never coming back I don't think it is. I don't have any, I mean, I'm not, I don't work on book expo, so I can't speak to that. I do know that um, Publishers Weekly did a virtual book show this year and hopefully they might be taking on the mantle, you know, passing, carrying the torch of some sort of, of large book exposition. I also love book expo. And again, it's, it's all about those in-person connections you get to make with people. They're, they're just really irreplaceable. I walked away with so many review review copies of the books that at one point you have to ship them back. There were so many. But for me, for me, it was Kid in a Candy Store. Yes, it's nice to get books signed and you schmooze and everything else. But it's just walking around all the authors and all the books and the ambiance and and the energy and the Javits Center. I know it's kind of shrunk over the years, but still it was I used to get, I used to take the train to New York City, walk over to the Javits Center, and I yep. just said, man, this is going to be a great day. Well, I will say something. Thank it you is. so much. It was a great day to have you on my podcast. Jenny Rusberg, thank you so it much. It was my pleasure. It was really lovely getting to talk to you. And as I said, I, I love to talk about book publishing. It's a it's a fascinating industry full of really interesting and, and good people. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm happy I got to, to offer a little bit of a, a glimpse into the life of a publicist. You did very well. More than a glimpse, you kind of opened up the window and the fresh air came in, but thanks a lot. <laughs> I'm Larry Davidson. Till next time. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, 
consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tied you to her kitchen chair She broke your throne and she cut your hair